Welcome to the Retail Media Moguls podcast brought to you by Platform 195. We share trends and strategies across retail media to help you accelerate your brand growth. I'm your host, Stuart Adamson. Welcome to the Retail Media Moguls podcast. I'm your host, Stuart Adamson, founder and CEO of Platform 195. And today I'm honored to have Kate Gleistein with us, a distinguished luminary in the realm of media and branding. Currently steering the ship as the Director of Media at PDC Brands, Kate has cemented her reputation over a decade with pivotal roles at illustrious entities like Spotify, American Express, and multiple global agencies. She boasts a comprehensive expertise spanning digital media, integrated partnerships, and media investments. And Kate is also recognized for her innovative approach to melding brands with culture, achieving notable results, and consistently elevating their presence. Kate, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Why don't you tell us a bit about you first, you know, your journey and how you ended up here at sort of PDC and yeah. that sort of retail media piece. Absolutely. I spent a number of years on the agency side in New York and worked across global agencies within Group M, Publicis, um, and working on larger brands, mainly in the digital space, also within partner negotiations. So worked closely within Group M with their team Zaxis. So it was also kind of part of that in-house agency trade desk shift as that was happening in the early 2010. And a lot of that time spent, I was getting closer and closer to working with the brands and understanding a little bit more about what was driving their objectives within media. And just wanting to understand more, I leaned in to an opportunity to work at American Express, which was also one of the clients at my agency at the time, and part of their global advertising and brand management team. And that was a very illuminating experience for me, just understanding all the kind of complexities of how entity as broad as American Express kind of steers their media objectives and how that kind of comes to life into what they're trying to achieve as a business. So yeah. That was a couple of years that I spent there and then I moved to Spotify where I was a major user and fan of the platform. So I had mm. that opportunity to work there for about five years, helping to stand up the media team in-house at Spotify. And that went through the IPO. We went from, I think, wow. 18 markets when I was there to meet most of the Everywhere. world at this point. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Almost 195, but it was a really great experience. And I feel like I worked very closely with data in those opportunities, both American Express and Spotify. And I say I was like spoiled with the amount of data that I had as a marketer and as an advertiser to help me understand what I was able to achieve and better ways to optimize the media and really understand the consumer. So much of it was first party, but we were also leaning on some of our third party partners that were very much within the digital space. And there was transparency across the board for a lot of our marketing objectives, working with them. And uh, an opportunity came up at PDC. And at the time, it was around the pandemic. And looking back, I was like, you know, this feels like a bit of a hole in my experience. I haven't worked as closely in retail. And this feels like a new challenge where I don't have the opportunity of seeing all of my data, understanding everything my consumer is looking to purchase or take advantage of the company offerings and marketing. So I was like, you know, why not go from being spoiled to yeah. really trying to understand how to crack some of these retail challenges in marketing? Because you don't do direct-to-consumer sales, it's via all the retailers. 
do you get to see much data from those retailers? Are they quite candid with that? Or is it still quite backwards in many ways in how they're dealing with data within those retailers and sharing that? Yeah, I think it depends on the data that you're looking to find. There is some Mm. areas where larger retailers are willing to help you paint a clearer picture of your consumer to understand, obviously, you know, there's point of sale data, but there is still a lot of missed opportunity, I'd say, in the transparency that you get from some larger retailer partners. So that is still a challenge. And I think there's the misconception right now too, where there's such an ubiquity when it comes to DTC and brands leveraging DTC, which I think is great. But with some companies, you just logistically don't have the opportunity to offer that to your clients. So our company, at least where I am now, we're kind of pigeonholed into the retailer world, not as a challenge necessarily, but it gives us the opportunity to be in more places for the consumer without putting too much of the cost on the consumer or us having to absorb costs of working as a DTC. What would you love to see, really? So obviously, you said you've seen bits of point of sale data. What Mm -hmm. sort of data would you love in an ideal world? I know the world isn't ideal, but would you love to see from those retailers? I'd say number one for us is benchmarks. A lot of what we're doing is new. We're a growing company. So as we're working, we're trying to understand if our campaigns, if our new partners, content, whatever it might be, if it's working for us, it really depends well, how does it compare to our category? How does it compare to our competitors? And I know competitors can be a tall order, but I think if you at least look at category, I think that's where we can really get a better picture of what we're doing. And that's where we struggled the most, I'd say, is getting those benchmarks from our third-party partners. Brilliant. Very interesting. I'm actually, we're seeing that quite a lot across the board from our clients as well and wanting that and actually getting, you know, we're building some dashboards for brands in order that they can see all of their strategic partnership data going into one place, but anonymized so that it protects the retailer, but gives the brand that mm-hmm. insight that they want. It feels yeah. like there's a big move towards that space or should be relatively yeah. soon, I think. Tell us about the transparency piece then. Are you getting much transparency from the retailers in terms of how they report to you in terms of product sales and things like that? Because mm-hmm. traditionally that's been a challenge. In terms of our sales, yes, we do have a decent amount of transparency. One thing I would also love to see more of is understanding the consumer shopping cart experience. I think you understand you know, how your products are moving, but I think when you see a broader picture of what the consumer is buying, you can understand where your products fit in in their lifestyle. And that's one area that I think we get the reporting from or we do our research within the consumers. But when it's self-reported, mm-hmm. it's not as honest. I don't think consumers are even honest with themselves into why they're necessarily buying the products that they're buying. So I think when you get the data, which gives you a little bit clearer picture, what other products are in their cart, what are they really shopping for? What is the overall shopping cart cost? And you understand where your products fit in, I think would paint a really clear picture for us and be transparency that I don't think any retailer is really willing to offer at this point. Yeah. Because obviously you're the director of media and you oversee not just the retail media piece, but obviously the main media piece as well. But mm-hmm. are you seeing a shift within that to sort of doing more retail media campaigns? Are you pushing budget more towards your retail partners? How is that mix changing, if at all? Yeah, 
Well, we work with so many retail partners, we really have to give an equal opportunity when it comes to commerce and how we're driving our point of sale. But I would say from a media mix standpoint, we are looking for more opportunities within e-commerce. And I think there's more and more that are being offered to make it a frictionless experience for the consumer when they go from what they're doing, how they're consuming media, what content they're consuming, and making sure that our messaging shows up in a way that aligns to the content, aligns to the experience that they're having, Mm. and then also provides some kind of call to action, retail opportunity that doesn't drive them completely away from the experience that they're having. So we do work with a lot of third-party retail platforms right now that can aggregates all the retailers that we do work with and provides a consumer whatever purchase opportunity is most convenient to them. So I think that type of technology is where we want to lean more and more into. It does keep us a little bit more in the digital space, but we are looking for opportunities because I still believe in the impact of, you know, whether it be connected TV or linear TV, that still Mm -hmm. provides an opportunity for the brand to really grow. And when our portfolio is a number of kind of burgeoning brands, we still need that upper funnel impact. Yeah. And those retail media platforms that you're using, as you said, they're, they're going across multiple retailers. What type of spend are you putting there? Is that your traditional trade spend or are you putting in brand spend into that? It's mostly brand spend. So there's a big shift in that because that was previously for connected TV and linear TV and things and now is moving towards retail media platforms. Yeah, I'd say percentage wise, it fits almost into the ad serving cost bucket at this point is sort of just cost of doing media is providing the consumers with some kind of landing page experience. And that is the cost of not being a DTC is that you do have to, again, like rely on those kind of third party platforms, specifically where we don't have the opportunity to drive to one specific retailer. So that's Mm. why we kind of rely on these outside platforms. But yeah, I mean, it does come at a cost of our upper funnel and more brand media buckets. But I think we're now in a world where those lines are being blurred from a consumer experience. It's not always, okay, well, here's for like our brand awareness and brand building. And this is a retail media. It is kind of melding into one larger experience for the consumer so mm. that you do have to have all of those you know, reasons to believe, brand identity, purchase driving messaging kind of in one experience and in one bucket. Wow. So talk talk me through that content piece. How are you approaching Mm -hmm. that then? Tell me a bit more about that. Yeah, I think content's in a really interesting place right now because it's a matter of sheer volume. So, you know, obviously the adoption of platforms like TikTok, we've been building larger social presences for a lot of our brands within TikTok. And obviously we still have our meta platforms that we're using. None of our platforms didn't have much of a presence on Twitter. So I think that's at least one lane that we've been able to navigate unscathed. But I'd say from a content perspective, we're generating a number of different types of content and seeing what works. I think you're in kind of constant like test mode when it comes to those social channels, but still having to understand what message is, is of course, driving to that sale experience, or at least driving to the right brand engagement experiences on those platforms. And that does not in any way replace the content and experiences that we still need to provide for consumers and more sort of the traditional content space. So what is going to live 
within our online video platforms or also our retail platforms. I think there's a lot that we still need to produce that looks polished and has this more like traditional brand content experience that will live on those retailer platforms and kind of represent the brand when consumers are in that kind of mindset of understanding what are the brand benefits, ingredients, reasons to believe, all of that. Yeah. And are those those retailers set up to take that, you know, type of interesting video content? Because a lot of them sit on these ancient CMS systems that quite clunk, create quite clunky landing pages, or is that changing? Has that evolved a bit now? And actually they're willing to take more exciting experiential content? I think that it's definitely changing. And a number of our larger retail partners, they do want to see some of those videos that are trending that are, you know, have quote unquote gone viral, you Mm. know, around our products and see if that's something that they can use within their platform. So I do think the lines are blurring. Even when you talk about like media channels, I say a number of times I've been watching, you know, different streaming platforms and seen content, seen ads that either are from social platforms and they're like produced to look and feel like they're within a social platform. So I think that's the messaging that consumers are most open to right now, or at least that they're expecting to see. So advertisers are a little bit more liberal in what they're serving and the environments that they're serving them in. And retailers are also responding in kind. They're like, you know, this video actually trended or worked, or at least if it's, you know, that you see a lot of like mashups, especially in the beauty category where there's mashups from content creators and it's actually put into more of like a branded spot that lives a lot within our retailer partners. Yeah. And are you doing connected TV with those retailers? So are you sort of sharing data and retargeting across connected TV yet? Is that on the radar? Yes. Like Walmart Connect, Roundell, those partners. Yeah. I think they're offering more than most CPG brands are able to leverage especially when they're smaller brands. I think they at least offer some of the data and ability to look at that kind of full circle impact of their media. It's standing up anything like an MMM within your brand, with your agency. You get a little bit of a view of that. And I think the impact is stronger than if you were to just kind of purchase within the trade desk or programmatically within Connected TV. Great. That's good to hear because... That data is so powerful. And obviously, it has all that sort of purchase intent data behind it. Actually, it's just such an opportunity. How have you guys set up to deal with the sort of getting products on the shelf within retailers, but also, you know, go and capture or go and, you know, book marketing campaigns with those retailers? Does it sit within the media team and the marketing team? Or does it still sit with the buyers on that side? How have you set up? I've experienced it's been more fluid. I have the privilege of working still within a pretty nimble organization. So it doesn't sit within one specific team and we kind of collaborate to make sure we are all servicing the relationship that we have with the retailer to the best of our ability without sacrificing what we're trying to do and what we're trying to achieve as a brand. So I think Mm. it's not one or the other necessarily, but there is kind of larger implications when it's not specifically one team's budget. So to your point, is this in the buyers no but you know we collaborate and we try to understand and weigh those options and you know i think more often than not the retailers are understanding of you know what is the challenge of actually leveraging too much of your marketing dollars in service of 
maybe necessarily the relationship with the retailer. And not to say that what we're doing as a marketing team is not trying to serve the objectives of that retailer. You know, we're obviously all trying to drive to point of sale. So I think they're a little bit more fluid and understanding just as much as our team is. Yeah. In case our listeners don't know about PDC, tell us about mm-hmm. the brand portfolio you have in there and the different brands that you have just to bring that live a bit. Yeah, absolutely. PDC started mainly focused within the fragrance category. So there are a number of different perfumes and body fragrances that we've started with. And then the company itself is a platform where we focus on acquiring some smaller brands that live within the beauty bath category, and we help them grow to much larger brands than they've started. And so one of our biggest brands now, which was acquisition about, I'd say like six years ago, is Dr. Teal's. And so that lives within the specialty bath category as really kind of created the, the category in and of itself. But we also have Calgon within that category. So when they joined, it made sense for the portfolio. And that brand really exploded in terms of like wellness, I'd say it was a huge trend that helped that brand grow over the pandemic. And we also acquired Cantu a few years ago, which is a hair care line. And I think our brands kind of span a lot of the beauty and wellness and specialty bath categories that are tend to be brands and products that you'd buy at retailer. So we work with some of the larger retailers, like you mentioned, Boots, Ulta, Walmart, CVS, Walgreens, a lot of those larger brands, but also kind of like your grocer or corner store. They're very accessible for consumers. Yeah. How much of that mix is traditional sort of in-store versus digital channels? Across the whole portfolio, I'm not entirely sure. I'd say it depends on the products. There's certain products that are a little bit more beneficial to buy online versus in-store for some of our consumers. And it's obviously more dependent upon availability. Um, So while we are in most stores and most larger retailers, it's a little bit product by product. So online, you can find a larger breadth of our products across our different brands. Yeah. And you mentioned the pandemic. Did you see, obviously, sort of shopping in store sort of became less ubiquitous? You know, how did you manage that in terms of a mix? I actually wasn't at PDC during the pandemic, but kind of in the latter half of it, you know, obviously e-commerce, that was a huge growth engine for the company over the pandemic. So we did see a lot more online purchases. And that was actually something that helped us from a buying perspective too. So as the consumer behavior shifted and our marketing objectives and digital dollars shifted to help drive those consumers there, we also saw that reflected in what they were purchasing online. So we did work with retailers to make sure that it was more and more beneficial. I mean, one of our products for Dr. Teal's is Epsom salt. So that's a large bag, right? That's a heavy yeah. bag and a heavy item to ship. So yeah. we were able to leverage our relationships with the retailers to make sure that that wasn't a burden and cost on the consumer, but it wasn't something that we necessarily had to absorb either. So I think there was a huge benefit for us in terms of our consumers buying more and more online. But I think we also saw opportunity with our grocer partners as well. Even in the pandemic, you still had consumers making those really terrifying weekly trips to the grocery store. And so we wanted to be there for that purchase experience so they didn't have to go to multiple stores to find all of their needs outside of grocery. So we were able to grow in those areas as well. How do you market to those consumers in store at the moment? What is the strategy in there in terms of getting 
those consumers once they're in that store to choose your brands versus any others? I mean, right now, there's a lot of opportunity and share of shelf. So how are we going to stand out as a brand among when we talk about Cantu and hair care, there's so many different products that you can buy. And I think also when we're in kind of an economic downturn right now, people start thinking about this is my brand that works for me and more of a, okay, well, what can I just use to wash my hair? You know, it really becomes more of a necessity. And so you want to still stand out as a brand on the shelf, but also really communicate what are the product benefits and why is it worth it for a consumer to believe that this product is meant for them. So there's a lot of opportunity, I think, in what is being communicated in store, even just in the packaging front. We also do work with our retailers and our buyers, you know, specific strategies around how are they positioning the packaging with end caps and things like that. I think we've also evolved how and where some of our products are placed in store so that it feels like a larger presence when we're actually positioned in one area. So if you talk about like Dr. Teal's, we span what would be like considered like different aisle categories, I guess, and in terms of where the products would live. So we've actually brought those together. So there is more of a routine that's being communicated to the consumer within the shelf space. So you have your specialty bath needs, you also right, right next to your lotions. So all of those things are kind of brought together and it looks like we take up much more real estate than we do, but yeah. it is in order for the consumer to understand the full offering. Wow, that's very smart. And the retailers have been open to doing that because traditionally mm-hmm. they're quite strict around what goes where, but they've actually exactly. been open to doing that. That's fantastic. So, I mean, are you seeing anything really innovative coming out of the retailers when they're offering you things at the moment? Or is it still tend to be the traditional sort of on-site activity and shelf wobblers and things like that? Yeah, I mean, I work with them much more closely within our media offerings versus in store. So I would say they do want to help us innovate in terms of their media. So I think there's more openness. I know we were talking about transparency in terms of reporting, but I think, you know, they do want to know. Because if it isn't specifically within the relationship, you know, it's still media dollars that they want to earn. There's yeah. still that opportunity of, you know, buy within the retailer versus another media channel or programmatic or whatever it might be. So I think we are seeing more opportunity, more offerings leveraging AI and more offerings in terms of how can we help you drive to the retailer, not just tell you, trust us, we're giving you the full report at the end of this campaign and we're optimizing towards it, you know, let's work together to figure out what's the best way to yeah. drive the consumer either in-store or online. Yeah, that's great to hear that collaboration mm-hmm. through the campaign rather than just buy and then see the report at the end with no sort of feedback. You mentioned AI there, you know, talk mm-hmm. to me about that, what's going on there? You know, there's so many different offerings within AI right now. So it feels like a very broad topic to cover and just one kind of response in terms of what the retailers are doing. But I think we're seeing more in the content adjacency space. So understanding what the content is that the consumer is viewing and making sure that your products and messaging is actually showing up in alignment to what they're viewing. Or Mm. if there's a way for us to kind of understand what those consumers have purchased and then also align our messaging to their kind of subsequent viewing of those Mm. purchases. But I think we've also been trying to leverage more in terms of how can we alter what our message is based on what the consumer has currently or previously purchased so that that's happening with 
a little bit more automation. Okay. So I would say, yeah. And who's leading the way in that at the moment, can you say? I'd say this kind of steps outside a little bit of what the retailers are doing necessarily, but we've been exploring different partnerships. We're actually talking to, or I've met recently with Curve Media. So they are actually more of a leader, I'd say, in, in the connected TV space. And they've definitely been branching out into more AI offerings. So yeah. that I think is really unique. And obviously, you know, we're working very closely with our social media partners to understand what we can do and how we can leverage AI for our messaging and making sure that we're optimizing not just our messaging, but also the way that consumers are purchasing online or converting online so that we have yeah. relevant messages there. Yeah. There's two really fascinating pieces of your career that you've had. So one is the Amex piece, which is obviously super performance-led, but also brilliant sort of long-term branding-led as well. So they marry those two things very, very well. And then also with Spotify, you've got that whole sort of integrated partnership piece as well, where they've built that audience out of huge amounts of partnerships. Maybe starting with Amex, how are you using that experience to do what you do at PDC? Yeah. I mean, I think with Amex, we had... A little bit more of what I was talking about earlier with understanding the consumer habits clearly, because we sat on so much data to understand what consumers were purchasing, how they behave. And I think we want to lean into that more or find ways to lean into that more with my current role with CPG brand is we're only seeing one part of that consumer's transaction. So I think with Amex, that was really enriched data in terms of understanding the consumer. You know, you talked about travel earlier. There's even ways that we could kind of predict if a consumer was looking to travel based off of some of their dining habits or grocery habits, or if we saw, you know, kind of married that with their experiences online to see, are they looking up specific recipes are within a region or a country, you know, and then you could see not that far after that, they might travel to that specific country. So I think there's opportunities there to really leverage and understand the consumer more than what you're able to do from a CPG perspective. I'd say that even translated kind of when I was at Spotify, listening habits really reflect a person's mood and what they're looking to do. So especially when you get broader and broader into the audio space, it's not just music that someone's listening to. Music obviously is a huge reflection of what people are thinking or feeling. And that's something that the company leaned really heavily into in, in our brand messaging. But you know, now you have things like audiobooks and podcasts. And similarly, if you still go with the travel example, if someone's going to travel, they might be listening to books about where they're traveling to, that city or that country. They might be you know, listening to podcasts on what are the places that they want to go to or researching the history of those places. So it's really interesting when you sit on such a broad database to understand a consumer more than what we're able to do now. So I think understanding that from both the Amex side and the Spotify side, it helps us to understand the partners that we're working with and how do we leverage those partners to help us paint a clearer picture of who they are, or what's motivating them, where mm. our brands might fit in. When we talk about Dr. Teal's again, as a great example, we market to both kind of a wellness consumer as well as an athlete. So we have a little bit of like a dual target audience. Mm. The athlete one's really interesting because anybody can be an athlete. 
you know, you might just be a weekend warrior and you ride your bike or your Peloton or whatever it might be, or you might be training for a triathlon. You know, our product is a benefit for anybody when it comes to recovering from those hard workouts. And then we also work with some brand ambassadors that are very large NFL superstars and also NCA superstars in American football. You have people who are huge football fans who might not necessarily also be athletes. So we do want to make sure we're communicating the product benefits and finding those consumers who really need to use our products for recovery. So a lot of those different platforms help us find those people just by those different kind of personality traits, data points that really Mm -hmm. point to, is this someone who maybe isn't a serious athlete, but is an athlete. So I think those are great ways to like lean into both platforms like Spotify to find the right consumer or you know, work with our retailers that are a little bit more transparent in terms of their purchase data to help us find the consumers that we want. Brilliant. And then presumably tailor the messaging to each each segment. So tell us a bit about you launched the, the Boss Mama Jama podcast in lockdown. Tell us a bit about that. That sounds brilliant. Yeah. So I became a mom during the pandemic. And when I was at Spotify, it's obviously a Swedish-owned company, mm. and they had great benefits globally. So I was able to take advantage of some really generous parental leave benefits that are so uncommon in the U.S. And you know, regardless of that support, I think it's still a really challenging transition for parents mm. becoming a parent, going back to work, and kind of readjusting, finding your footing and your identity in the workplace, but also balancing that kind of work life home life just very very delicate balance and i just thought hey i i'm working at spotify i understand audio i love listening to podcasts why don't i start a podcast about how do you kind of leverage the right benefits and policies with an employer to help support the employee base that is new or existing parents. And especially when we're facing so many obstacles within the US to pass things like the Build Back Better bill, including parental leave and paid parental leave policies. So I think when that's happening so slowly on a legislative basis, it really is helpful to educate new parents on having the conversation with their companies, with their HRBPs on other ways to better support their employees who are parents. Yeah. And are you seeing that happen? Are US companies being a bit more forgiving around this stuff? Yeah, I think the pandemic was obviously a Mm. catalyst for a lot of change when it came to the workplace. So you had, you know, more flexibility and work from home, which is very helpful for parents. You saw with a great resignation, you know, there was a huge shift in mindset with employees or sorry, employers and companies in the private sector of how do we retain talent? And mm. I think talent retention is still super important within companies just from a cost basis. But also, you know, you want to make sure you have the diversity of thought. And when you don't have the right policies in place or things that are supporting your employee base in the right way, you're going to see a higher turn. And that retention, I think, is was something that was seen so much more within parents. I think we saw something like 3 million women quit their jobs during the pandemic because they just couldn't find the right balance of running the home with their kids at home, you know, having all the the school closures, homeschooling, and also having the understanding and flexibility within their workplace. So that I think was a massive 
brain drain where you need to have the support in place. And I think with the pandemic and with people just saying, you know, kind of being fed up in the US, especially after the paid family leave was stripped from the Build Back Better bill, there's been massive amounts of movements in the US. One that I've been a part of is Chamber of Mothers. And it's a grassroots movement of moms um, kind of petitioning Mm. to legislators and also, again, going to private sectors and seeing, you know, how can we do better in the US because there's so much room for improvement. I think actually there's a huge opportunity there. I mean, we talk about it often as a senior management team in our business where you get a lot of mums who are coming back from maternity leave or had children, young children decided to come back into the workforce. And actually they work super hard. You know, they really want to do a good job. The hours that they, they give you, they want to work hard. But And all you have to do in return is give them complete flexibility because, mm-hmm. you know, they have to go and pick up a kid from school or they need to go and do all that. And for us, mm-hmm. you know, it doesn't really matter when that job gets done as long as it gets done. And actually, you give people the flexibility nine times out of 10, you know, that they'll work doubly hard for you and they'll pick up things in moments when they're probably not supposed to be working. But, you know, yeah. and I think it's a huge opportunity for businesses to be capitalizing that and actually on a, probably on a part-time basis. So rather than sort of full-time, depending on what people coming back into the work want to do, mm-hmm. I think it's quite an untapped, it's a massive untapped resource. And as you said, that flexibility of what COVID and that, acceptance of homeworking really it's a good opportunity now for it to change i think that's also part of the dei conversation is one you want to be able to support all parents i think the more support you give to dads and also yeah. you know you have same-sex couples so i think the taking a typical parent structure is a little bit different mm-hmm. but you also want to make sure that there's room for fathers who are involved and also want to be there to pick up their kids or you know maybe they have the more flexible job compared to their wives so i think it's you know one creating that support but also making it socially acceptable for it to be across both genders when we started platform 195 we were also parents you know with young kids and actually it was written straight away into our policy to do that flexibility Mm -hmm. for people and to have family value at the core because I think it's just so important. And, and actually, the trust comes back in droves from the staff. You know, mm-hmm. you know, people really appreciate it. And, you know, as I said, you know, they want to do a great job. It's just giving them the flexibility to do it. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's quite a funny story. In about 2012, when I was at Thomas Cook, it, it went through a big cash crunch at that point and was, you know, had to go and be saved, rescued by the banks. There was a lady that was in the marketing team there. She'd gone on off on maternity leave just as this started kicking off. And she came back. I saw her again sort of a year later, just stood in the office. And it was like she'd emerged from hibernation because we had changed the office. It was in a completely different place. Oh, the whole of her team had gone. I think I was probably the only one left of the people when she'd left. <laughs> it was still there. The oh. brand had changed. The whole of the senior management had changed. So it was literally like she'd come back from maternity leave into a completely different company with completely different people. You know, the yeah. only thing that remained was the name, two words, Thomas Cook, and everything else was different. And I felt so sorry for it because she was just stood there like, going, what like, is this? Like, what <laughs> happened? Yeah. yeah. Well, it's just, that's but that's it. You know, you like going back into, I don't know, into a coma and then waking up in somewhere completely different. And, you know, it's all about managing that transition as well. Exactly. Yeah. There's a lot of support, I think, that can be offered and leading up to going through maternity leave or parental leave and then coming back. I've talked to a number of companies that actually consult on just that, on how to kind of career coach, not just the person going on leave, but also their manager to make sure that they're 
creating the right parental leave plan, support plan, and that that person's career isn't kind of forgotten. You know, just because you're becoming a mom or a parent doesn't mean that everything else goes by the wayside. You know, you don't strip your complete identity. So, you know, how do you kind of work with this new major mm-hmm. piece of somebody's life to help them also work to their goals that might not change, or maybe they do change. Yeah. And just like anybody else's goals might change, you know, whether you have a child mm-hmm. or not. So I think there's a lot of support, not just within policy or, you know, kind of the parental leave policy necessarily or health benefits, but it's a little bit more about how do you slowly support parents in a way that changes the culture or the expectations around becoming a parent and parental leave. And that can even include that poor woman that she just had like one or two check-ins with her manager. Yeah. It might've not been so jarring, you know, and yeah. she could have yeah. come back ready to hit the ground running because she knew, all right, I'm lacking my team. My brand is different. Here's, you know, the now office it's is a like, place. Yeah. right now she's <laughs> going to have all this time of a ramp up when, you know, just with a couple of check-ins, she could have just been ready to go. Yeah, so. true. So tell us where to find the podcast and what it's called. It's Boss Mama Jamma. You can find the podcast on anywhere you get podcasts. So Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon. And you can also find me on Instagram at Boss Mama Jamma and Patreon. Fantastic. I think you're doing a great thing with that. We're almost out of time. So I'm just going to go back to the media piece again and just say, you know, look, you're an experienced media person. I mean, what advice would you give to sort of a young person coming into the media industry now, given it's constantly shifting on its axis? Yes. The advice I would give now is you now have the opportunity. I think everyone's a little bit jittery around AI and what that's going to mean, whether you're in creative, whether you're a media buyer. I think if you're able to lean into it as a tool, just like any other, I think this is just additive to the skill sets and the technology that we've had in the past 10, 15 years. If you're able to lean into that as a way to make your work better, to make yourself better, to make your knowledge better, then that gives you room to be more of a strategic thinker and thought Mm -hmm. leader and to take that opportunity. Don't get too worried about if you're going to have a job a year, two years, five years from now. Think about it as an asset and how you can leverage it and to really use your brain and your thought. Yeah, absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much, Kate, for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's been a real pleasure having you because often we talk with the tech guys or we talk with the agency guys. So it's really great to actually hear from all the retailers and it's really great to hear from a brand and see how you're interacting with everybody. Hopefully you'll come back and see us again at some point in the future. That'd be great. Thank you so much for taking the time. And, you know, please do tune in to our future podcasts and, you know, hopefully... You'll find them of interest and I'll be going off and listening to Boss Mama Jamma. Great. Thank you for having me and congratulations on the new podcast. The Retail Media Moguls podcast is brought to you by Platform 195. To learn more about Platform 195 and how to connect retail media with intelligent marketing to accelerate growth, visit platform195.com. And then make sure to search for Retail Media Moguls in Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. And on behalf of the team here at Platform 195, thanks for listening.